when you're a kid, you just are selfish. You don't know how to not be. And so there is a lot of growth in him Hmm. learning. Apply that to Malta. No. Welcome back to another episode of Is Fitz Happy? I'm Emma. And I'm Luke. And this week we're talking about chapter two, The Pirate's Leg. This book is really on one about vague chapter titles of the main characters. (laughs) Mad Ship last week, which is clearly Paragon. The Pirate's Leg, which is clearly about Kenneth. (laughs) True. I don't know. Just the theme I've seen. <laughs> well, you introed us in. Do you want to intro the chapter as well? Sure. <laughs> um, <laughs> so in this intro, we have Wintro speaking to Vivacia. And Wintro is talking about Kenneth's injury and how he is kind of worrying about the future and just his musings and grappling with the fear of failure, I suppose is a good way to phrase it. Yeah. He says, Berendahl said that if one considered the worst possible outcome and planned how to face it, then he could be uh, decisive when it came time to act, which I just want to point out and say, I think my therapist would disagree. (laughs) (laughs) That is not. Don't dwell on it. No, do not. Do not picture worst case scenarios of every single thing that could go wrong. It also is a common maxim, you know, like plan for the worst. Yes. So this is not advice for anxious people. This is (laughs) (laughs) advice for doctors going into surgery, which is kind of what Wintro is right now. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. As Emma mentioned, this is from Vivacious point of view and She's thinking about this as well, saying there was little to say to each other that they did not both already know. Even now the boy spoke only to put his own thoughts in order, not to ask any advice of her. She knew that, but still prompted him along. Our worst fear is what? And Wintrow, as you said, is thinking about that surgery. He is going through step by step, like... The pirate is suffering from fevers that are bringing him under, and every time he awakens, he's weaker than before. So I need to do it quick. But also, we don't have any good place to do it. We don't have medicine. So it's very unlikely he could survive. Winter says, I also know it is unlikely he will survive my cutting. If he dies, so must my father and I. That was the bargain I struck with him. He paused and then went on. I would die. That is not truly the worst outcome. The worst is that you must continue alone, a slave of these pirates. Wintrow is, in his own typical Wintrow way, really reflecting on what is going to happen, what it actually means, and what he did to bring this about. And he realizes that he made a bargain that isn't of his own choice to make. He just threw Vivacia in there because he's linked to Vivacia, him dying means leaving Vivacia alone. And so he's at a bit of a dilemma. 
in his mind morally or like grappling with his choices, but at the same time he knows what he has to do in the future. So it's an odd situation to be in and he just is want wanting to talk out loud to Vivacia, reason through his own thoughts and order them like Vivacia says, but also acknowledge that to Vivacia out loud of like, yeah, it would be terrible if I failed and kind of died and I, I would die and you would be left alone. But like me dying isn't the worst part. It's the you being left alone because you have to live after that. Right. He says, in doing so, I unintentionally wagered your life as well. It was not mine to bet. You have, I believe, a great deal more to lose than I. So he's clearly grappling with that sense of, oh, actually, without thinking about it, I also treated you like an object and it's not really fair to you that I made that decision. I also think it's interesting that we're reading from Vivacia's point of view because we kind of have this apathetic conversation on her end where she's not really in this conversation. She doesn't feel like there's a point to him talking. She sees this as him talking out loud and not trying to include her at all and is very just dismissive of her role in this conversation which I can see how it comes across that way to her, but because we have insight into Wintrow's mind, we know that that's not really what he's thinking when this is happening. I don't think Vivacia thinks that either, but that's an interesting, like the pessimistic view of like, he's not including me or whatever. Well, she specifically says he's just talking out his own thoughts. He's not including me, but I'm going to prompt him anyway. I think that shows that she doesn't think she's part. This isn't a conversation. This is Wintrow speaking out loud. Yeah. And in Wintrow's mind, he is trying to grapple this. Yes, he is thinking out loud, but it's more of a conversation on his end Mm. where she's an equal participant. And it doesn't feel like Vivacia feels at least in the beginning of this conversation that she is. Yeah. Because she does preface that, I guess with, we both already know what's in our minds. So probably felt this and with Wintrow he likes speaking things out loud after he's thought them through and him just thinking them through Vivacia probably knows (laughs) so right I guess so yeah yeah but either way Vivacia isn't as concerned about becoming a quote-unquote slave to the pirates but her mind is stuck on Captain Kennet and she brings up he is not what I expected a pirate to be Captain Kennet, I mean. Thoughtfully, she added, a slave, you just said, but I do not think he considers me his slave. I I wrote a little note that said, no, just his property. (laughs) Because she's a woman. Yeah. Well, she's a woman and a boat. (laughs) I don't know. He it's so weird that she is so infatuated with him. They have talked one time right now. And I know time has passed since we last saw them, but as far as we can tell, he's been stuck in the cabin festering a wound and she's like obsessed. I don't know. It just feels really weird. Like why? I guess because he showed interest in a way that no one has so far and has said that she gets to have autonomy and no one else has given her that or been capable of giving her that. Mm -hmm. But it's just so weird that she's like, oh, Kenneth, though. He's so cute. I love him. He doesn't think of me as an object. Winter agrees, though, saying that he's not what I thought a pirate would be either. 
but despite his charm and intelligence, we must remember that he is one. Moreover, we must recall that if I fail, he will not be the one to command you. He would be dead. There is no telling who would then possess you. It might be Sorkor, his first mate. It might be Edda, his woman. Or perhaps Sa'adar would once more attempt to claim you for himself and the freed slaves. I cannot win. If the operation is successful, I must watch Kenneth take you from me. Already he flatters and charms you with his words, and his crew works your decks. I have little say in anything that happens aboard you anymore. Whether Kenneth lives or dies, I will soon have no power to protect you. Vivacia shrugged one wizardwood shoulder. And you did before, she asked, somewhat coldly. I suppose not. The boy's voice was apologetic. Yet I had some idea of what to expect. Too much has happened too fast to both of us. There has been too much death and too many changes. I have had no time to mourn, no time to meditate. I scarce know who or what I am any more. They both fell silent, considering. So yeah, we have Vivacia kind of ch chiming in of like, oh, but Kent doesn't see me as a slave. And Wintrow reminding them both of the reality of, well, the future is incredibly uncertain if I fail. Because Vivacia, then you're cast into whatever you want. This man who is charming you and is intelligent, even though he is a pirate, isn't going to be the one in charge. And then Wintrow ends on the introspective, I don't know who I am anymore. It's been too fast. Two things, too many things are happening at once. I haven't had time to myself to order my thoughts and what has happened or properly grieve or anything. Yeah, and I really feel bad in this moment because we see how broken their relationship is, especially even though this is just like two pages of conversation, you can tell how far removed Vivacia has become and how much anger that hasn't been processed there is and that sort of rift in their relationship that I don't know if Wintrow is unaware of or just not sure how he can fix it. I think the second one. Yeah, and so it's this horrible time of what used to be Vivacia reaching out and trying to be there for Wintrow is now Wintrow the same, basically the same way he was before, except giving more of a reach and it's too little too late and it's almost a role re reversal, but I don't know that Wintrow is still reaching hard enough for Vivacia for it to be a complete role reversal, but he is trying, which is different. Yeah. And we end with Wintrow kind of wondering who he is and then go right into his point of view to see a little bit more from his perspective in this chapter. And like the serpents that we had in the prologue, Wintrow says that he feels adrift in time. His life, his real life, was far away in a peaceful monastery in a warm valley rich with orchards and fields. If he could step across the intervening days and distance... He, if he could wake up in his narrow bed in his cool cell, he was sure he could pick up that thread from that life. He hadn't changed, he insisted to himself. Not really. He had never truly been a slave. That tattoo only had been his father's cruel revenge for his attempt at escaping. He was still Wintrow. In a few quiet days, he could rediscover the peaceful priest inside him. 
kind of finishes up with like, I can't do that here though. Too much shifting. Right. And not only shifting of the physical landscape of what's going on and what's happening around him, but Vivacia as well, because he's locked in on her feelings. So not only does he have to shuffle through his feelings, he's also shuffling through hers that they're that is coming through their connection. And they've both been brutalized and gone through a lot. Yeah. And neither of them really know how to handle that. So it's a very hard situation to be in. It is a little interesting to me because we had last book, the ending where Wintrow is adamant that this is his ship. He's a sailor. He and Vivacia share something and that connection is there. Like he knows that that's his connection. This is his ship now. And then here we have that kind of reversal into, no, I'm still a priest. I actually, I, I wish I could just go back. I want to just survive until I can go back to the monastery again. And I don't know that that's because he truly feels that way. I think that's just a safe, comforting zone to be in after all the things that yeah. have happened. I think he just longs for those peaceful days. And it, it is hearkening back a little bit to what we talked about Wintrow before in the previous book and his nature of kind of denying certain things that are happening and trying to convince himself that it should be just this way. Right. And I think this paragraph really shows how young he is, even though he is mature and even though he has progressed as a character, it still shows that as a child, he, he can still be the Wintrow, the priest changing your profession or who you are doesn't necessarily have to change your attitudes towards things. But I think really he is longing for those peaceful moments. And that's, that's what we see here. Right. And I think it especially stood out to me because I remember he specifically said in the last book, you know, there's no going back to the monastery because he would miss Vivacia. He would want to be back with Vivacia. Right. There's no, end of his story that doesn't end with him on vivacia but now he's kind of like oh i'll just go back to the monastery i'll be a priest and it's fine nothing else needs to happen so i don't know just sad that now that he has the time there's no real peace to sort through what's happened it's all just oh if only i could be in the monastery again maybe then things would be better and yeah just dealing with all the hard stuff that happened and this is where, as we were talking about in the previous episode, where the recap comes in. We have a whole paragraph here of what happened on the stormy night. The slaves had a revolt or whatever. I do want to say one th or read one sentence out from this that I thought was interesting because it is it spells plainly Sa'adar's motivations, which I don't think they've fully covered yet. They've hinted at, but this kind of spells it out for people getting into this book, saying... Sa'adar, a priest among the slaves and the leader of the uprising, had other ambitions. He wished not only to stand in judgment on Wintra's father, Kyle, but also to demand Kennet turn the Vivacia over to the slaves as their rightful prize. That kind of comes to a head in this chapter as well, or at least that thread picks up again in this book. But otherwise, the rest of it is basically just a, uh, a recap. Yeah, which is funny because... I, we mentioned last chapter, but so far nobody else has really gotten a recap. 
But in this in vivacious story, we get the recap of everything that's happened to her. And I guess her story has kind of been one of the more brutal ones. So there is a lot that happened. I, I do also want to point out that Wintrow, from his point of view, says his own involuntary servitude on the ship had been had soured what should have been a natural bond between them being him and Vivacia. And I think that's a really interesting thing to think about from his point of view, that he thinks that the thing that soured their bond was him becoming a slave and him. No, no, I don't think it's the slave part. I think he's talking about his involuntary servitude on board as like him being forced to go on board. Mm, Okay. That's what I'm thinking at least. Okay. I like that better. I, uh, I guess I, cause I was just thinking if he thinks that the slavery is the point at which their relationship oh, began no. to sour, <laughs> which I guess technically that's a little bit after Vivisha was so mad that she was like, whatever, that I don't need the, him anyway. Yeah, that was a breaking point where he left. Yeah. So in some ways, yes, but it wasn't because of the slavery, but yeah, I guess if you're saying in general, him being forced to be on the boat is the thing. Yeah. Then, Be- yeah. I think he's, cause he's remarking on what would have been their natural bond. And I don't think he thinks of the, before he was a slave part as a natural bond. Okay. So I think he's discussing his whole involuntary uh, placement <laughs> on board. Right. That makes sense. But yeah, so he has to go through that. We hear everything. And like you said, get that insight into Sadar. It's not as simple as him just wanting to be freed from slavery. There is a lot of ulterior motives, and he wants the ship. We also get a little intro to where they're heading and where they're riding into. We learn if you weren't paying attention to the first book or picked up this book for the first time as the first one that you're reading that Vivacia is on the move and following the Marietta. They're heading to a pirate island or a pirate stronghold somewhere. Wintrow doesn't know much more about that. We know it is Bull Run Creek, I believe, or Bull Creek Run. Something like that. Wherever they were before this, where Kenneth said like, hey, doctors, leave me alone. You don't know what you're doing. So they're heading back there to kind of clean up the ship and get it fixed up and do surgery on Kennet. Right. Which also makes note that the pirate islands were uncharted. And what sense, like what sense was there in charting a coast that changed almost daily? Conventional wisdom was to give it a wide berth and sail swiftly past it. Yet the Marietta surged forward confidently and the Vivacia followed. Obviously, the pirates were very familiar with these channels and islands. Yeah, and I think that part is really important because this may be the only in-depth thought we get about the Pirate Isles from somebody that is not familiar with them. Yeah, I think Brashen has discussed that in his head, but obviously he had been there before. Right, I don't think there's that sense of why people avoid the Pirate Isles and outside of there being pirates there. Because I think before this, I as a reader thought, People just didn't go through there because they were more likely to be attacked by pirates. Or if they did go through there, it was a risk hoping that you miss the pirates entirely, but it's faster. And here we get that the coastline is ever changing because of the atmosphere and the land that is there. 
And I think that's an interesting aspect that would deter sailors from trying to chart it and map it and makes it perfect for pirates too. But just knowing that it probably doesn't change as much as people think just from the outside, it looks different during different seasons. I think we get a description of them talking about like, they're not sure if it's one giant river with a bunch of tributaries forming a Delta that's changing all the time, or if it's a bunch of rivers, but like, it seems like when you look at a map, there's that blank space with a bunch of islands out to it. I always thought the pirate islands were always the islands just sitting out there in the water. And I think that's part of them, but also with all those tributaries and deltas, they create those little runs where you can, yes, sail a ship up them, or you can ground your ship if you don't know where you're going. And I think Divi Town is on the mainland in yeah. one of those areas. So that's something that kind of I'm trying to keep fixed in my mind reading through this. Yeah. So anyway, we get a little bit of Pirate Isles lore, which I thought was cool. And then we're focusing on the present of how Wintrow is watching Kenneth's crew take over the ship and is in awe of them, which happened at the end of last book. But it's another reminder of these people that are sailing the ship are really good at their job. They are deft and they are quick and they get things done in a really well done manner and one that Wintrow has never seen before because mm-hmm. he's only been on this one voyage with his father right. in a capacity to be able to tell what's going on, I guess. And so seeing how a good crew works the ship, it kind of gives him a sense of pride, but there's also that little bit of hurt that it couldn't be a crew that his family has and also the slaves are still gathered on deck and so in his mind that kind of spoils that image as well of a well-run ship right because these humans are still trying to recover from the horrors of what they endured and there were far too many of them for vivacious size Although they now occupied the open decks as well as the holds below, they still had the crowded look of cattle being transported. They stood idly in small groups on the busy decks, moving only when the crew gestured them out of the way. Some of the healthier ones worked dispiritedly with rags and buckets cleaning vivacious decks and holds. Dissatisfaction showed on many faces. Wintrow wondered uneasily if they would act on it. He also remarks on how he doesn't know what to feel about them because before the uprising, he felt pity for them. He tried to help them as much as possible, but afterwards he just sees those people killing his previous friends and the crewmates. He remembered the screams and the blood as they killed all his shipmates. He could not name the emotion that now swept through him when he considered the former slaves. Compounded of fear and anger, disgust, and sympathy, it wrenched his soul with a shame at feeling it. It was not worthy emotion for a priest of Saw to experience. So he chose his other option. He felt nothing. So I think that just kind of goes back to what he was first saying, that he's just so overwhelmed with things, he doesn't know how to process anything. And these constant reminders of what he has been through just throw that more into turmoil. Right, and... It was a big change. There were a lot of things that went down that he doesn't really have a space to process because like we started this chapter off with, 
his life is on the line. He now has to worry about saving Kenneth's life, which is kind of good because it gives him something to think about other than the atrocities of what happened on board. But in moments like this, where he is admiring the ship, that is cut short because he sees all the people as a reminder of what happened. And he also talks about how he feels very bad for what went down because of his role in his crew, the uh, crewmates all being murdered because Vivacia wasn't always a slave ship. It's not like these, most of the people that were crew had always been slavers and they had signed on to be part of a slave ship on purpose. Like this was a new development. This was their first group of slaves and it doesn't feel fair that they were all killed mercilessly, mercilessly, because of that fact. And so that moral gray area is really something that Wintrow is trying to grapple with. Yeah. And he compares his thoughts to what Sa'adar is preaching. And Sa'adar, he says, believes that all who had died deserved it. He preached that by working as crew on a slave ship, they had become the enemies of all just men. Wintrow felt himself deeply divided on that. He clung to the comforting idea that Sa did not demand he judge others. He told himself that Sa reserved all judging for himself, for only the creator had the wisdom to be judge. He still sees Sa Adar as someone who's just a little bit too hard and not following his vision for what Sa preaches and is trying to use that in his mind as like, I'm not the one here to judge, even though I am judging people. (laughs) Right. (laughs) I just need to deal with myself. And he's still conflicted about that because he doesn't know what to feel. Yeah. And I think it is hard when so much brutality did happen in such a short amount of time. And it's not as though he was super close with all of the crew. I mean... Yes, he was, he knew them and obviously was friends with some of them on some capacity, but ultimately he was ostracized from that group and he was shunned. So it's not like he's coming out of place of these are his best friends, but that's still really traumatic to lose all of them like that. Right. To know who they are before they become slavers and they don't even get a chance to rectify that decision now. And according to Sadar, that's fine which is another point against him for being a trash (laughs) fake priest. (laughs) But as they go on, he notes that the slaves on board did not share Wintrow's opinion that it was Saw's duty to judge. Some of them seemed to remember him as the person that came and showed them mercy and gave them the damp cool rag, but other people saw him as a sham because he's the captain's son, And they were the ones who ultimately took matters into their own hands. So a lot of the slaves on board don't even really see him as being part of the uprising. And sure, some of them remember the mercy, but most of them, even though they remember that, don't think it was enough. But everybody, regardless of which side of the thought process they are on, avoided him. So he is kind of isolated once again. On the ship. He says he can't fault them because he avoids them as well and chooses to spend most of his time by Vivacia. And not a lot of the crew go up there either unless they need to. So 
it's nice for him. He can find a somewhat private and quiet spot on board where no one really bothers him. He leaned his head back against her railing and tried to find a thought that wasn't painful. At home, it would almost be spring, and he thinks of the buds swelling in the monastery orchards, wonders how Berendal's doing with his own studies if he ever misses Wintrow, looking, looking at his hands, thinking about what they once were, but now notes that, well, they're sailors' hands now. They're calloused all across the palms. His finger would never wear a priest's ring. But here, it was a different kind of spring. The islands to either side of the channel had become even more lush, green, and alive, with shorebirds arguing about nesting space. So it's just different environments that he's seeing himself in, and I think still kind of pulling back and forth in his nature of like, I want to be the priest in the orchard and just no calluses and be there, but also this is kind of my life now. Right. Yeah. Just coming to terms with that. And then he feels something tugging at him and Vivacia lets him know that his father is calling for him. And he realizes that he felt that through the bond. Right. Which is really interesting because I wonder if the tugging sensation was Vivacia trying to get his attention or if that was him actually feeling his father calling for him on the ship through the boards. I think that. I think it's that one. I think it's more like Kyle yelling for Wintrow or where's my son or something like that. And just Wintrow subconsciously recognizing that. Yeah. Wintrow does note that going through that storm definitely strengthened and affirmed their bond of the mind and the spirit between them. He did not resent it as he once had, and he sensed that Vivacia did not cherish it as dearly as she once had. Perhaps in this, at least, their feelings were meeting in the middle. Since the storm, she had been kind to him, but no more than that. Like a preoccupied parent with a demanding child, he thought to himself. In some ways, we have exchanged roles since our journey began, she observed aloud. He nodded, having neither spirit nor energy to deny the truth. And he straightens his shoulders and heads towards his father. So we get that little echo of what you had said earlier in the chapter, how Vivacia feels like they've kind of reversed the roles a bit too. Wintrow did kind of treat her like a child who didn't know much. He just wasn't, he, he didn't want to be around her. He didn't want to amuse her or placate her or answer that many questions unless they were about Saw. Right. He was very preoccupied of his own thoughts, feelings, where he was going and how he could escape. And I think Vivacia right now is in a similar position where she's focused on the future, what could happen. Yeah, and I think, I think something that we don't talk about enough is even though Wintrow is the most emo emotionally mature Vestret Haven, he's still only like 13 when he gets on this ship, 13, 14, and he's still a child. So as frustrating as it is how he was treating Vivacia, he is a child and he it's different when you're an adult and you can recognize that, sure, you're going through something, but a, a Another person may need you more or 
especially with the ship that is childlike and just developing. This is their first ever awakened journey as an adult he would probably be better able to compartmentalize and be like okay well let me give you the support you need because you're not here for my support but because he is a child and was a child he didn't have that he didn't have that sense like there's no there's that inherently childish selfishness that comes with a young age i think and it's not something that is necessarily like i feel like selfishness seems so mean to say especially because Wintro is one of the more kind characters but when you're a kid you just are selfish you don't know how to not be and so there is a lot of growth in him Mm. learning apply that to malta no (laughs) (laughs) there is a lot of growth in him yes yes no (laughs) obviously we should give malta a little bit more you know grace as well but i do think that it's important to remember that as frustrating as it is to see him be a little disappointed at how this relationship has turned out due to his own actions, it's also worth reminding ourselves and listeners that he is a child. He was a child. Of course, he didn't do this well. He was not set up to raise a child, let alone a ship that he barely understood after not even being around other, I would say, children in that it's not like he had younger siblings to take care of at the monastery. Yes, there were kids his age and probably a little bit younger, but they weren't like his responsibility to take right. care of. He and was learning with them. Same goes with Vivacia. It's not her responsibility now to really comfort Wintro. Right. She's also a child. She, as Even though she's like 80, she, she's a She's boat. actually 63. Oh. Maybe 64. Look at that. Yeah. So... Either way, she's only been awake and aware of her surroundings for less than a year. So, yeah, it's also not her role to comfort him. So he's threading his way through the deck, through all these people that are standing around, no one meeting his eyes, no one challenging him. Foolish, he told himself to believe they all watched his passage. They had won. Why should they care about the actions of one surviving crew member? At least he had come through it physically unscathed and then reflects upon the marks on Vivacia that she now bore. The blood stains, the the weathering from the storm itself, splinters from the deck. And he feels kind of shamed to see his family ship that way, as if he had seen his sister whoring in a tavern, he says. Which, what a weird comparison of like, something has been wronged to this ship that I hold dearly versus my sister choosing a career I don't agree with. (laughs) Like (laughs) the shame is the same. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) (laughs) His heart went out to her and he wondered what it would have been like to have come aboard the ship of his own free will as a boy, perhaps to serve under his grandfather's authority. Then he sets everything aside and walks past the two guards, the two map face slave, former slave guards that are standing outside his father's door or the door to Gantry's cabin and enters in. I do just want to pause. I am also sad Wintro doesn't get to sail with Efren. Yeah. I don't think Efren would have ever forced him on that ship to begin with. So he probably never would have been able to sail with him. Right. But I think if he could have had someone like Efren as the captain, 
while he was in this situation, there's a potential he would have had a better relationship with Vivacia. Oh, he definitely would have had a better relationship with her, I think. Uh, because as he remarks earlier, it's his involuntary placement on there. Yeah. And this this goes to show that he's not just pining for his monastery life either. This is the first time I think we see that Wintrow is like, oh, what a, it would have been different. Maybe even when I was a boy, if I went to sail with my grandfather. And that's before he was a priest. So he's saying like, it would have been cool to have even a different life than I did and not just wish for his old life back. Which I thought was an interesting kind of comparison to the start of his section. Yeah. He enters the cabin, though, and has to confront his father, who is sitting on the edge of the bunk. He's still looking very beat up. His swollen and bruised face is kind of staring at Wintrow or lifting his eyes to Wintrow's face. And his posture suggested pain and despair, but there was only acid sarcasm in his greeting. Nice of you to recall me. I had supposed you were too busy groveling to your new masters. And throughout this whole scene, Wintrow is very composed and tries to hold himself back. And we see that here where he says he holds back a sigh and then says, I came to see you earlier, but you were sleeping. I know rest would heal you more than anything I could offer. How are your ribs? And they go through a little bit of a back and forth of how are you doing? I left you some food. It's like, oh yeah, you call that food some water and two dry crusts of bread or whatever. And Winter was like, I'm doing the best I can. A lot of it was spoiled in the storm. And Kyle won't let it go. It's like, oh, you mean when the slaves ate it all? Because they can't even ration because they're so dumb. <laughs> So he's just trying to take the worst angle at every single topic. Yeah, it's... I really don't understand Kyle's thinking in this, where Wintrow kind of has all the power, and Wintrow could at any point just stop coming to him with food or care, and yet, instead of being grateful for that, and at the very least just keeping quiet, he is constantly trying to antagonize Wintrow and putting everything on Wintrow. It's all Wintrow's fault and all the slaves' fault. This has nothing to do with him. He doesn't deserve this treatment and he should be treated like the captain he is. He can't even go outside. <laughs> yeah. And this is still a huge difference in level of treatment than what the slaves just went through. Like he's right. getting so much better treatment. Wintrow, excuse me, uh, Kyle addresses Wintrow saying, they are no more fit, meaning the slaves, are no more fit to be in charge of themselves than a flock of chickens. I hope you are pleased with the freedom you dispense to them. It's as like to be their deaths as their salvation. Wintrow, of course, is stubbornly insisting that they freed themselves, which Kyle rebuts with, you did nothing to stop them, just as I did nothing to stop you from bringing them aboard in chains. Wintrow took a breath to go on, then stopped himself. No matter how hard he tried to justify what he had done, his father would never accept his reasons. Kyle's words nudged the bruises on Wintrow's conscience. Were the deaths of the crew his fault because he had done nothing? If that was so, then was he also responsible for the deaths of the slaves before the uprising? The thought was too painful to consider. And so, as I, as I mentioned, Wintrow's really holding himself back from just diving into arguments with his father because he knows it's pointless. 
because Kyle is just, as you said, Emma, blaming everything on Wintro. Right. This isn't an introspective conversation. This isn't Kyle trying to reason out what happened. This is him blaming and specifically doing so to hurt his son in any way he can. And so Wintro continues on with the medical talk and just like, hey, what can I do to help you? And we find out that the medical supplies are still missing and no one has admitted to taking them. So maybe they have gone overboard during the storm. His father says there's no point in doing anything without them then. Food would be nice, however. And Wintro says, I'll see what I can do. Kyle, of course, is still poking at things, saying, of course you will. And what will you do about the pirate? This feels very much like Malta. You very much see Malta's personality shining through here. Kyle has put himself in this situation, and yet he's still blaming everyone else. And then on top of that, being snarky to the people helping and being like, well, how are you going to fix this problem? Of course, you're going to help me and give me what I want. Now tell me how you're fixing the other problem. And then instead of, since he's not getting anywhere on this front, I guess, he does ask, what are you going to do about the pirate? So Wintro honestly answers that he's not sure. He isn't know what's worse, trying and having the captain die and then leaving them dead in the ship all alone or being successful and them going on as prisoners under the captain's watch. And Kyle has a very visceral reaction to this. His father spat on the deck, an action so unlike him that it was as shocking as a blow. His eyes glittered like cold stones. I despise you, he growled. Your mother must have lain with a serpent to bring forth something like you. It shames me to have folk name you my son. Look at you. Pirates have taken over your family ship, the livelihood of your mother and sister and little brother. Their very survival depends on you taking this ship back. But you don't even think of that. No. All you wonder is if you will kill or cure the pirates whose boot is on your neck. You will have not given one thought to getting weapons for us or persuading the ship to defy him as she defied me. And all the time you wasted nursemating those slaves when they were in chains. Do you try to get any of them to help you now? No, you mouse along and help that damn pirate keep the ship he has stolen from us. Wintro shakes his head and says, you're not rational. What do you expect of me? Am I supposed to single-handedly take the ship back from Kennet and his crew, subdue the slaves and bring in the cargo again, and then sail it on, on to Chalcid? And this is where we get Kyle's point of view of what happened. You and this devil ship were able to overthrow me and my crew. Why don't you turn the ship against him as you turned her against me? Why can't you just once act in the best interest of your family? His father stood up, his fist clenched as if he would attack Wintro. And then... That hurts an injury, so he collapses and can't. This really shows, again, I, I want to talk about who Kyle is and what he thinks, because we've talked about this near the beginning of the first book right? and touched on it a little bit afterwards. But we believe he's, tr- at least I believe, I guess I won't speak for you now, <laughs> but we believed <laughs> at the time that he was truly thinking that he acted in the best interests of his family. As a family man, he he wanted to 
you know, save the family from debt as a man who's deeply embedded in the patriarchal and sexist ideals of Chalced. He wanted to be that savior. He thought he could only, he's the only one who could really do that. Now that comes along with his ambition to actually sail a live ship, the greed to have that status. Sure. All of that comes along with that. But at the heart of it, I think he truly wanted to be the savior. Maybe that's out of selfish reasons. Maybe that's out of the glory that could have come with that and be seen as a great traitor to save a family on the brink of starvation and ruin. But ultimately, I truly believe that he wanted to help out the Vestrits and his new family. Or his family, I guess. Not new. He's been married for over 15 years. (laughs) So with that in mind, he's coming into this conversation with his son who went to the priesthood, his firstborn son, and obviously doesn't agree with that decision. Wants a man to follow in his footsteps. Very disappointed with who Wintrow is, and Wintrow doesn't understand the stakes, I don't think. I don't think he understands the debt. I don't think I, he understands any of yeah, that. I think this is a really good point, Um, yeah, that you're bringing up, that we only ever see Wintrow care about how to get back to the... um how to get back to being a priest to his priesthood, number one, and number two, what the moral standings are of allowing slavery to be on a ship. Right. Like those are the things he's really worried about and only things he's really thinking his world is solely what's in front of him right now. He doesn't know about the family debt in a capacity that we're aware of. I mean, maybe he's heard that they have debt, but I assume most traders have debt. So that's not like earth breaking news. He does not know the stakes at which this debt is at now. Like he doesn't understand that it's. And maybe he doesn't even know much about live ship debt or anything like that because he left when he was what, like eight or nine. So not really the age where they're talking finances with the son. Right. And I mean, they didn't start doing it until this year with Malta when they were kind of forced to. Right. So I really don't think he understands anything about their situation. No. And I also don't think he's taking into consideration that I am not condoning slavery. And I don't think that slavery should have been the option, but the money coming from this is what his family would be surviving on. And he's not thinking about that aspect at all. He has not once worried about what's going to happen to his family back home because the ship was captured. And I think that is an important thing that, of course, Kyle is going to be worried about because Kyle is number one, an adult, and number two, the That's his wife and his two kids. That's literally something he's been thinking about probably for the last 14, 15 years. And as negative of an impact of the society and worldviews that Kyle has, they still, like, he is coming from a place of trying to be the provider. And I don't necessarily think that is a negative. And I don't think, I think that that is admirable. He is ultimately trying to put his family first, just the way he goes about it and the decisions he makes to do that 
I don't agree with at all. Right, right. Yeah, <laughs> so, we definitely understand that. Yeah. I mean, I don't think any of us no. agree with Kyle. <laughs> Even the guys, everyone listening in, I don't think anyone agrees with Kyle. But right. uh, it's a knock on Wintro because even though Kyle says it straight up, like they rely on you. Or they rely on the ship, at least. Wintro doesn't give it any thought no. after this. As far as I'm aware, at least. Yeah. I think later on he's like, oh, thank God you guys are okay because I heard there was some trouble in Bingtown. But there's no thoughts about it at the moment or in the past book. Or how he is connected to that. Right. He's always been a part. He's a priest, not a part of the Vestrits anymore. Yeah. Or the Havens, I guess. Right. And I think it is obviously really gross the way in which Kyle is putting the weight of this on Oh, Wintrow. of course, yeah. In Kyle's mind, everything's twisted to be Wintrow's fault as well. Like, Yeah, and the fact that he thinks that Wintrow twisted the ship against him and that's how everything went wrong. Why can't he just do that again? And it's like, well, because it didn't happen the first time. <laughs> yeah, that's what Wintrow says too. Yeah. That, he says, I never turned it against you. You did that yourself. Yeah, so it's just really interesting because... He does have some solid points and there is, I think it's so hard because I waffle between Wintro is one person. What could he possibly do in the face of all these people being taken into slavery on his family ship and then all the people turning against and revolting, but also on the, I go to the other side of, well, there's always actions you can do. And even if it's just one person making one action, that is a big action. So like, for the most part, I don't think there's a huge opportunity for Wintrow to take back over this ship and take it from Kennet and the pirates. However, I do agree with Kyle that there's more he could be doing to try to do that. Yeah, Kyle definitely puts way more agency on Wintrow than he actually had. Yeah. But Wintrow was also very preoccupied with himself, which yeah. is fair. I mean, he's a kid. He's put into a situation that he didn't want to be in. Rest from his life of over six years or so but still yeah i think it just goes to show wintrow's achilles heel is that he cannot look outside of himself to do things he is so like trapped in the quandaries of whether or not things are moral that he kind of is a, a side character in his own life he's not making decisions he's not which is, Active. Why, which is why the last chapter of the last book that we read was so surprising to us. And we talked about it is that he made those swift actions. He confronted Kenneth and held him hostage to get right. a deal. It's quick actions. He, he actually did something and it was, yes, still based on his morals, but also not based on it because he threatened to hurt somebody. Yeah, it's really, I don't know. Winter is such an interesting character because yeah. he really does try to play this like, I have no, there's nothing I can do to change anything. I'm just here and no decision is no decision. Not even inaction is action. Like it just, he has not quite grasped that yet that like, you're making a decision whether or not you want to. So you might as well make the one mm -hmm. that you're happier with. And I like, that's one of my least favorite aspects of Wintro is his woe is me attitude of <laughs> I have, there's nothing I could possibly do. And he's not even trying. <laughs> 
So ultimately, Kyle is disappointed. Wintrow knows that. And Kyle's just like, go get me some food. I will try, Wintrow said coldly, and he turned and left the room. But as he leaves, the tattooed marks of the uh, man's face kind of crawled as the man spoke to him and said, why do you take that from him? He treats you like a dog. He's my father. Wintrow tried to conceal his dismay that they had listened to their conversation. He's a horse's ass, the other guard observed coldly. Makes you the son of a horse's ass. Shut up, the first guard snarled. The boy isn't bad. If you can't remember who was kind to you when you were chained up, I can. You say the word, boy, and I'll make him crawl for you. No, I don't want that. I don't want anyone to crawl for me. Please, don't hurt my father. Suit yourself. I speak from experience, lad. It's the only way to deal with a man like that. He crawls for you or you crawl for him. It's all he knows. Perhaps. He started to walk away, then paused. I don't know your name. Vilia. You're Wintrow, right? Yes, I'm Wintrow. I'm pleased to know your name, Vilia. Wintrow looked at the other guard expectantly. He frowned and looked uncomfortable. Deccan, he said finally. Deccan, Wintrow repeated, fixing it in his mind. He deliberately met the man's eyes and nodded at him before he turned away. He could sense both amusement and approval from Vilia. Such a minor way of standing up for himself, and yet he felt better for having done it. So I do want to say, I have notes of whenever the first guard, Deccan, says, he's a horse's ass. I'm like, yes, go off. And then he's like, that makes you the son of a horse's ass. I'm like, oh, oh, no. (laughs) (laughs) And then whatever Vilia says, uh, you say the word, I'll make him crawl. I'm like, yes, we stand. Vilia's my new favorite. But I do think, outside of that funny little aside, I do think this is an important thing because it does show Wintro that he has more power than he thinks. That there is more he can do than he thinks. It's like the little inkling of, oh, maybe I'm not as helpless as I thought, which I think is important. Yeah, and he says it, asking the names, like a little way to stand up for yourself. And I guess it was to the man who was kind of rude to him. But also, it's humanizing the slaves there. Yeah. Asking them their names, fixing it in your mind to remember it later, looking them in their eye, you know? They're not really used to that at this point, I'm sure. Right. And 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 these are the map faces. So these are the slaves that were considered the most rowdy that Wintrow was the most afraid of coming into this whole experience. So it does kind of show growth on his end just that he is able to quote unquote stand up to them but also see them as human now yeah except in the next thing (laughs) the next scene where Sa'adar steps into his path and then he notes that there are two more map faces flanking Sa'adar like leashed pit dogs (laughs) yeah step in baby steps baby steps steps. in the right direction but i mean that description does kind of work because sadar does have them under his control or under his command at least right sadar is trying to lead the slaves and he confronts wintrow yeah and i do before we get there i do want to say that i think it's really nice of vilia to point out to wintrow the type of person that his father is to give him the life advice of, listen, I know men like your dad and 
they're not like normal people. There is no reason that's going to get to them. You either lick the boot or are the lick boot licker, you know, it's <laughs> the way of the world for them. And so I think that's a really nice, like, I think it's coming from a kind place, that insight, right? even yeah. though it's not necessarily the kindest message. Um, but as you said, Sadar is there. And I do want to say, just in case anybody else didn't know the layout of the boat, like I didn't, Winter was currently in a hallway. So that means that the the rooms to the at least first and second mate's quarters are in a hallway. Yeah. And I had imagined they were just facing like outside, like it was oh, outside. No. No, 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 If that makes sense. Yeah. You go inside and then there's a hallway. Yeah. yeah. So just in case anybody else didn't realize that we're in a hallway right now, <laughs> <laughs> um, even though we're not in the room. So he is going back out towards the deck to find food for his father or see what he can scrounge up and saw Adar steps in his way. Says, I've been looking for you. Have you? Wintrow resolved to continue as he had begun. He squared his shoulders and met the older man's eyes. Did you post those two men outside my father's room? Sadar confirms that he did. He must be confined until he can be judged and justice done to him. Do you dispute that? I? Wintrow appeared to consider the question. Why would it worry you if I did? Were I you, I would not worry about what Wintrow Vestret thought. I would worry about what Captain Kennet might think of me taking such authority to myself. Kennet's a dying man, Sa'adar said boldly. Brig is the one who commands here. He seems to welcome my authority over the slaves. He gives out his orders through me. He has not challenged my posting of a guard on Captain Haven. Slaves? Surely they are all free folk now, Wintrow smiled as he spoke and pretended not to notice how closely the map faces were following the conversation. Other former slaves loitering on the deck were also eavesdropping, and some drew closer. You know what I mean, and oh, generally a man says what he means, Wintra replies. I think this is really important because this is what Sadar did to Wintro yeah. last book. Wintro said to Etta, make sure the slaves don't kill my father too, or else Kenneth's life is forfeit. And saw Dar screamed out, no one here is a slave. We're all free men now. At so, least everyone ignored him that time. <laughs> yeah. So, so this time having saw Dar call them slaves too and be like, well, you know what I meant. Proves that number one, that other time was in bad faith. And number two, he probably doesn't see them as much more than slaves either. <laughs> yeah. I mean, he's looking for a position of power right. as we've kind of talked about before. But I love Wintrow's. Generally, a man says what he means as a comeback. Let's Great. It, 10 out of yeah. 10. Let's it hang for a second and then says, oh, you were looking for me, you said. I was. Have you been to see Kennet today? Why do you ask? Because I should like to know plainly what his intentions are. The priest had a trained voice and he now gave it a carrying quality. So more people are kind of gathering around. And he gives the tale of like, oh, Captain Kennet is said to have free the slaves and give them the ship. So... We expected to keep it. We hoped it would be a tool for the new beginnings each of us make. Now Captain Kennett speaks as if he will keep it for himself. With all we have heard of him, we do not believe he is a man who would snatch from us the only thing of value we have. Therefore, we wish to ask him plainly and fairly, to whom does he believe this ship belongs? So obviously, yes, he's carrying his voice. He's trying to gather in as many slaves as possible, confronting the old crew 
the old captain's son, who seems to have a close connection with Kennet, try to gauge everything. And Wintrow has to navigate that situation of being not the conduit for that news. Right. And I think also more importantly, Sa'adar is setting up the fact that Kennet is going to be a horrible person if he doesn't give them the ship. He is trying, he's using a really good manipulation tactic of, well, we thought he was a good guy. And I guess if he can't follow his promises, like snatch from us, the only thing of value we have. Right. Which already laying claim to it. He's always saying like, it's our ship. Yeah. And if Kenneth doesn't let us have our ship, he's taking our only value. So yeah, he's, he's really playing it up and really, it's quite clever what he's doing. Oh, yeah. And it does a little bit feel like discount Kennet. <laughs> because this is so clear. And I don't know that that's necessarily fair to say, because I'm sure Kennet, if we were to read him doing something like this, would be equally as see-through. But in this, I feel like Sadar is a little bit more of the mustache-twirling vi- uh, villain <laughs> to Kennet's actual evil person, if that makes sense. Yeah, because Sa'adar, I don't think he has bad intentions, really. He's kind of a bad person, but like... I mean, he does want to murder people, so... Bring them to justice. In his mind, he's still, as we talked about, he's still a judge or priest, traveling priest, for Sa. And he views anybody who takes part in the slave trade as somebody who must face justice. And probably die for their sins, I guess. That includes Captain Haven. Yes, he is also power hungry and he wants control of the ship as well. But I, I truly think that slavery changed him enough where he's just like, these people are the worst. I'm a man of God and I must bring them to justice now. And I think he sees himself on the right side of history of what I am doing is just. And if Kenneth refuses me to give justice for uh, Captain Haven then he's a bad man as well. Do you think, this is kind of a tangent, but do you think whenever the traveling priests are going around and giving judgment, that means that if somebody is viewed as being guilty, they are murdered? No, I don't think so. I think they also dole out the punishments befit of the crime. Okay. So that probably, I mean maybe they would involve local law enforcement or maybe they usually don't preside over criminal dealings. But with Saadar's radicalization of going through slavery, I think he's taking charge of that aspect as well. Interesting. Okay. Either way, just a thought that I had. Yeah. So there is this sort of manipulation and this game, so to speak, going on where Sadar is trying to get everyone to listen and he's trying to set it up so he's the good guy, Kenneth's the bad guy if they don't give them the ship. And in doing so, I think what's the most interesting is he's being very verbally against Kenneth, even though some of it isn't as bad as others, but especially when he started this by saying, Kenneth's a dying man, what he thinks doesn't matter Right. I think that's really interesting, especially because they're on a ship with the crew of Captain Kennet. Yeah, but initially around them, they, it, Robin Hobbs states that it's basically only slaves. 
So he's carrying his voice and setting up those words with slaves. And then after this, after Winter replies to what he just says, then it says that some of the pirate crewmen are gathering nearby as well. So I think him starting out with Captain, like Kenneth is a dying man to the slaves around him or the former slaves around him really sets up the tone for that next phrase or the next paragraphs he does say of like, yeah, we've heard he's a great man, but this is our ship according to what he does. So if he takes it, he's a hypocrite. Right. So I think like that really sets the tone of like, he's dying already. Like, just give it to us. Right. Trying to sow that sentiment amongst all of the, uh, the freedmen. Yeah. But interestingly, he's kind of giving Wintrow more authority in doing this because yeah. he's coming to Wintrow and he's talking to Wintrow about who gets the ship. Which, I think he, I think he sees him as an easy target. One right. Kenneth is kind of holed up right in his cabin mm-hmm. and Wintrow does talk to him, but Wintrow is a kid who is seen is also like a priest. And I think Saadar really thinks that he can just bull rush him over. Yeah. I don't know. I just think it's interesting because he unwittingly gives him authority right, yeah. by doing this. <laughs> Wintrow responds saying, if you wish to ask that question of captain Kenneth, then I encourage you to do so. Only he can give his opinion of the answer. If you ask it of me, you will hear not my opinion, but the truth. And he speaks deliberately softly to bring in more people around him. And this is where it says some of the pirate crew is also gathering. They had a dangerous look to them, Wintro observes. Sadar, of course, is smiling and still thinks he has the upper hand. And he says, your truth is that the ship belongs to you, I suppose. And he goes through the whole, Wintro goes through the whole thing of like, no, 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 no. Wintrow, or excuse me, Vivacia is a free creature with a right to determine her own life. Or would you, who have worn the heavy chains of slavery, presume to do to another what was done so cruelly to you? Ostensibly, he addressed Sa'adar. Wintrow did not look around to see how the question affected the others. Instead, he was silent as if awaiting an answer. After a moment, Sa'adar gave a snort of disdainful laughter. He cannot be serious, he told the throng. By some sorcery the figurehead can speak. It is an interesting bit of Bingtown trickery. But a ship is a ship, a thing, and not a person. And by rights, this ship is ours. Only a few slaves muttered assent. For no sooner was the question uttered than a pirate confronted him. Are you talking mutiny? We'll get to that in a second, but I just want to talk about that response because live ships are a thing of wonder. They're they're viewed as a magic item, right? Yeah. Even people in Bingtown don't really understand how unique each one is, how they have their own personalities, their memories, their, you know, their emotions and feelings. But Wintrow does, and he can attest to that. Like, yes, this is a real person, but Sa'adar, speaking as a point of authority of Sa. To all of these freedmen who he has kind of led in this uprising could look at him as a, you know, an authority in the matter of like, oh, it's just trickery. But I think that question really catches a lot of them off guard of like, is it if she doesn't agree to go with us? Is this another slavery? Because we hate that so much, you know? Right. And especially as people who have been affected personally by slavery, who were taken against their will for things that were out of their control, mostly, I'm sure. It would cause a lot of them to pause and think, is it worth it to do this to something else? Even if it is just a bit of magic trickery, 
it plants that seed of do we know because this person, it's his family ship. Wouldn't he know if it was a real person or not? Right. But I think overall, this really makes me think about how there is so much downside of keeping big things like this a secret. Like it's done with the skill and the wit just like overall. And I get that the intention is if nobody knows very much about a thing, then they can't find the weaknesses. But then in situations like this, they also don't understand the importance of what the thing is and they can't understand it on any level because they don't even have a base knowledge of what it is. Normally for live ships, that wouldn't be an issue. Yeah, (laughs) no. These are, you know, very special circumstances. Definitely. But I think in general, it's just really interesting to have this where like you have to be a family member to have any sort of knowledge about what's going on. And even then, like Wintrow barely knows the surface of things that he needs to know about a live ship. Gatekeeping knowledge in general is is kind of a recurring theme in some of these books. Yeah, and I think ultimately it usually does more harm than good. So these pirates are then confronting Sa'adar, who is shocked. He's like, obviously, obviously he had not expected this. He stood straight and began indignantly, Why should it be a concern of yours? And the stocky pirate poked the tall priest in the chest. Kennet's our captain. What he says goes, right? When the priest did not answer, the man grinned. Sadar stepped back from the pressure of his forefinger against his chest. And he's t- as he turns to walk away, the pirate observes, You'd do best not to talk anything against, or against anything Kennet does. You don't like something? Tell the captain to his face. He's a hard man, but fair. Don't wag your tongue behind his back. If you make trouble on this ship, it will only come down on you. And so the pirates go back to their tasks. Attention is shifting back to Sadar from everyone ga- everyone else gathered around. And he did not mask the angry glint in his eyes, but says in a voice that sounded thin and childish, Be assured I will speak to Kenneth about this. Be assured I will. And Wintrow in his head is like, Maybe my father is right. Maybe there is some way to regain my family ship from both the slaves and the pirates. In any conflict, there is opportunity for someone. And so he's feeling a little bit strangely about that thought kind of coming into his head, but he gets the thought of maybe I can manipulate the social situation here. Yeah, it's, I don't know, obviously a win for Wintrow. Um, It also is a really good look into how the crew feels about Kennet. Because we get that line of he's tough but fair and you can tell him your problems. You don't need to talk about it behind his back. Just say what your problem is and he'll probably fix it. Which I think is like actually pretty impressive. Like something that's a point for Kenneth. As oh yeah, horrible, he's a good captain. Yeah, as horrible as he is of a person, he does seem like a respectable captain. That is pretty big of him to not allow dissent to go through his crew because he's willing to listen to what they have to say. Right. I think that's really important. And so that's kind of cool to know. And it also paints the bigger picture of why so many people respect him. Because I think even though in his inner dialogue, he has no respect for anybody else. He has the actions of someone respecting other people. Yeah. And that's really important. Mm -hmm. So, 
Sawadar is cowed sufficiently. <laughs> For now. For now. So we jump back to Vivacia's point of view. And she's very preoccupied. She's kind of following Marietta. The crew is cleaning filth from her decks and holds, repairing woodwork. And for the first time in many months, she had no qualms about the abilities of her captain. So she could let her mind completely wander. And so she's preoccupied about what is happening on deck. Right. And before we get into that, I do just want to say how big of a burn that is to Kyle's crew that she actually trusts the people to know how to do their job for the first time. Yeah, she had no qualms as to the abilities of her captain. That is a big burn. (laughs) Against Kyle, yeah. Yeah, of like, oh, I can actually just let them do what they're supposed to do and I will just enjoy myself. (laughs) Like, how bad was Captain Kyle? (laughs) <laughs> manning the ship in a way that befits a ship. Right. I don't know, just crazy. And so her mind is resting with Kenneth on deck. And she is trying to reach for these details. The details of what he's feeling and what Etta's feeling, who's kind of cleansing him with cool water and a cloth and that sort of thing. But there was no bond there. She did not know them well enough yet. Kenneth was far more accessible than Etta because his fever dreams were spilling out everywhere. And she absorbed them, but could make no sense of them. And she lists a couple thoughts here. Um, before we get into that, a couple things. First, a question I just had that popped into my mind. Do you think the conversing between ship and human, especially through the bond, but just in general people who know how to open themselves up to ships. Is that through the skill or is that on a different level? I think it's a different level. Because just the like idea of Kenneth spilling out of himself, that is very reminiscent of Fitz when he was learning the skill and how he couldn't keep his thoughts in his mind. I think they're related because some people don't hear dragons talk and that could be related to, you know, their ability to skill or anything like that. But I feel like live ships are just a little bit different in some ways. I guess, yeah. It does say that she can feel everything on board. Even if it's not wizard wood, she can feel the chopping of onions happening in the kitchen, like people below deck, which is really interesting. I don't know. I just thought that that little like line there, I'm like, oh, that makes me think of the skill. I wonder if he's just more skilled than others. Or, like, maybe Etta isn't skilled at all. Although, everyone can talk to ships. It's not like the ship is talking through your mind. Right. So, I don't know. Weird. But I do want to say there's a, por- a part here where she says that the it's easy to put out all of the stuff from her mind of, like, the chopping of the onions, the moving of things below deck. Because those things could not change her course in life. But Kenneth could. And I specifically underline that that's why she's going to focus on him is because she feels like he can change the course of her life. Why does she suddenly believe that? Because last book, when we last saw her, she was pretty adamant that there's not much he could do. He could try to woo her, but, you know, ultimately she's a vestrit. It's still the course of her life, though. 
Like if he lives or dies, those are two different courses that she goes down. Mm. Like what happens is she get handed off to the slaves anyways. Like that, he is the one in charge of her fate at this point. Okay. Chopping onions doesn't matter. That's fair. The man himself is in charge of her life now. Good point. Good point. So Vivacia is looking at or thinking about Kenneth's dreams that are spilling out. And she says that there's a little boy who was tormented, torn between loyalty to a father who loved him but had no idea how to protect him, and a man who protected him from others but had no love at all in his heart. Over and over again, a serpent rose from the depths of his dreams to shear off his leg. The bite of its jaws was acid and ice. From the depths of his soul, he reached toward her, toward a deep sharing that he recalled only as a formless memory from a lost infancy. Hello? Hello, what's this? Or who is this, perhaps I should say? The voice, Kenneth's voice, came to her in a tiny whisper inside her mind. She shook her head, tousling her hair into the wind. The pirate did not speak to her. Even in her strongest communications with Althea and Wintrow, their thoughts had not come so clearly into her mind. This is not Kenneth, she murmured to herself. Of that she was certain. Yet it was certainly his voice. In his stateroom, the pirate captain drew a deep breath and expelled it, muttering denials and refusals as he did so. He groaned suddenly. No, not Kenneth, the tiny voice confirmed in amusement. Nor are you the vestrate you think yourself to be. Who are you? And so Vivacia is very disconcerted and pulls away a bit and can feel this little presence kind of reaching towards her even more. And she senses an odd kinship with the being who has spoken to her, but turns the aggressive prying aside easily and disconnects and fully like disconnects from that presence. And that presence is obviously the charm. Yeah, I think... I think it's really a weird sensation here. We learn a lot about how this bond works, at least for Vivacia, and that she doesn't really, she isn't actually speaking to Althea and Wintrow in their mind. They're not speaking to her, which is odd because from their point of view, they are, and she does respond to their thoughts. Right. But I guess it's more just the general gist of what they mean or what they're feeling rather than the exact words, I or guess. Or even as she says in this passage, not as clearly mm, as, yeah. you know, this charm is speaking. So I wonder if it's more like she kind of hears that as a whisper and this was like somebody talking next to her, like in a normal voice, you know? I don't know. But either way, it was a really interesting thought where... Maybe she's not actually hearing the full of their thoughts the way we think she is or the way the characters themselves think she is, Um, which does mean there's a little bit more privacy than previously thought. But still, there is that sense of she's there. She's kind of listening. And ironically enough, she is aghast at the invasion of her own personal privacy of her mind when someone does it back, which is extra funny because she doesn't seem to understand why Wintrow would want to be cut off from her or what the like deal is with there's like no line for her for other people but then as soon as it's her mind it's like whoa that's weird and personal <laughs> <laughs> but I do also want to point out that Kenneth in his dreams is reaching towards that formless connection with her that he recognizes from infancy yeah 
And I think it's not her that he's reaching out to. I think he's reaching out to Paragon. Yeah. But she doesn't know that because she doesn't know his past. And so it's just something familiar that he's doing. Yeah. And so on her end, it's like, oh, he's purposely reaching out to me, which probably helps with his wooing of her ultimately, unfortunately. (laughs) But I think also knowing that that reach there, I don't think is related to Vivacia in any capacity. It's more that baseline of when you're really sick and on the brink of death and that reaching out towards a familiarity or the comfort that you know. And in this case, it's probably Paragon, which is sad because now Paragon is on a boat (laughs) or on a beach listless and ready to die. (laughs) So this voice comes in, it's Kenneth's charm. He points out that she's not a vestret. She's something more just as much as he is not Kenneth. And I want to ask, how does he know so much? Why does he know what he was before and understand how to reach out to her mind and all these things, like what to do? I think it's related to what we had talked about before. I think we, maybe this was near the end of last book's episodes, but I think it's because of how many lives Vivacia has absorbed versus this wizard wood that has only been next to Kenneth for a year. Okay. So I think that has retained a little bit more of itself of its previous self and the lives of Vestrits and the memories and all of the crew members that have been on there have kind of contributed to Vivacia and not Bolt. Yeah. Who's the, uh, the dragon. I think I think what's also kind of interesting (laughs) is that Vivacia is like, I mean, they're both dragon or whatever, but ultimately the cocoon is just memories. Right. So the fact that each boat, like wizard boat, wizard wood boat and live ship, I guess, and Kenneth's little charm, they have a distinct sense of which dragon they were supposed to be Yeah. when it's the, the wizard wood is just an amalgamation of memories of being a dragon, not specifically one dragon's memories. So I think that's kind of weird that it translate into each one being their own dragon, <laughs> even though technically the dragon body isn't part of it. <laughs> I don't know. Just a thought I had. They did wrap around a specific serpent, though. That's true. Those secretions and the mucus that the serpents probably help with, right? That's fair, yeah. So, a lot more individualized than just that. But yeah, it's... Especially with, like, Tintaglia helping out the serpents at the end of this trilogy. Mm -hmm. It's going to be a lot of her memories. Yeah. And so she is reflecting on this connection with this being, this thing that was there and decides that she's not going to tolerate this just kind of slipping past. And she reach out, reaches out aggressively again to try to unmask that presence and confront him. Keeping her own guard up, she reached out tentatively toward the cabin where Kenneth shifted in his sleep. She found the pirate easily. He still struggled through his fever dreams, hiding within a cupboard while some dream being stalked him, calling his name in a falsely sweet tone. The woman set a cool cloth on his brow and draped another over a swollen stump of his leg. 
Vivesha almost felt the sudden easing it brought him. The ship reached out again more boldly, but found no one else there. Where are you? she demanded suddenly and angrily. Kennet jerked with a cry as the stalker in his dream echoed her words, and Etta bent over him, murmuring soothing words. Vivacious question went unanswered. So the charm still picks and chooses when to speak. I have a random tinfoil hat theory about the charm that this chapter made me think of. What if, because the charm is smaller and doesn't have as much of Kenneth's life that he's absorbed, it can't talk as frequently? Like, what if it only has little spurts of energy to use and it needs more time to, like, recharge, so to speak? Could be. I don't know. Just a thought I had. Obviously, probably nothing, but maybe that's why it also randomly just doesn't respond to Kenneth. Could be, yeah. I think also the charm just wants to be quiet around Kenneth sometimes. (laughs) Wants to frustrate him. As we see in the next section here where we join in with Kenneth. As he gasps awake, he wakes up feeling a little bit contented. He's like, oh, yeah, I'm on my live ship in my captain's cabin. Cries out for water, and Etta has some right there waiting for him. And he's just feeling relaxed for a second as she's wiping down his hands with a cool cloth. He has his head back, and she flipped the pillow as he put his head back deftly. And then all of a sudden, realization of his leg sets in. He can't ignore that pain at all. Can we also back up for a second? I want to talk about how when he comes to and is thinking about where he is, he talks about how he could almost feel the awareness of the ship around him, protecting him. She was a second skin, shielding him from the world. He sighed in satisfaction. I think that's really important to talk about because I think this goes back to He's kind of in this delirious state a little bit. He's coming back to, obviously, but he's coming out of a fever dream. And that sense of protectiveness that he's getting from Vivacia, even though that's not necessarily what Vivacia is doing, she's kind of more just checking in. I think it goes back to how Paragon was for him and what that feeling that Paragon gave him was. And so equating the two in his mind because of this like tenuous scrap grasp of reality that he has, I think was a really important thing to point out. Yeah. And so he just, he can't ignore his injury and that feeling of pain really gets into him and soaks into him as he's awake. Now he looks over at Etta and he sees that her face is looking thinner under the brush of her short black hair. And it made her dark eyes even more immense. You look terrible. He rebuked her. She set her sewing aside immediately and smiled as if he had complimented her. It's hard for me to see you like this. When you are ill, I can't sleep. I can't eat. Selfish woman. She'd fed his leg to a sea serpent and and now tried to make it out that it was her problem. Was he supposed to feel sorry for her? He pushed the thought aside. Where's that boy, Wintrow? So he's very irritable right now. He's looking for Wintrow because he's supposed to... Wintrow's supposed to heal his leg. And Etta's trying to say, like, I think he wants to wait until we make port in Bull Creek. There are a number of things he wants to have on hand before he heals you. And she turns away and starts crying a bit because she did not expect him to survive. And Kenneth now knows that. To know that so suddenly both scared and angered him. 
It was as if she had wished his death upon him. So again, similar to Kyle, just kind of putting blame because he has nothing else to do with the situation, being angry, irritable, in pain. And he's just like, this woman is my problem right now. Yeah. She made me lose my leg. Go find Wintrow. Go get the boy. Go. Yeah. (laughs) Remind him that he's going to die if he fails. He's super crabby with Etta and is really mean. He keeps, I mean, he says she's in her, in his mind that she's looking older now with all the lines around her face and is like mad that she, it's because she's scared for him. It's so weird. Like, I just don't think he is capable of accepting genuine care about himself. It has to be coming from an angle. We talked about that too. Uh, in the last book with Sorcor and Ada when they were still on the Marietta, mm-hmm. where he's just like that feeling of helplessness. Yeah. He just doesn't know what to do with that. That's clearly them trying to work an angle. They're trying to get his guard down so that they can take over or whatever it is that he thinks that they're going to do. But he does send her away. And she confronts somebody right outside the door. No, go away. I won't have him bothered with such things right now. Then in a lower, threatening voice, touch that door and I'll kill you right here. Whoever it was heeded her, for no knock came at the door. Obviously, saw a daughter. Yes. <laughs> trying to go, hey, what's going on with the ship? <laughs> <laughs> also, you'll never believe what just happened on the ship with Wintro. <laughs> so the charm starts speaking to him as Etta has left. What will you do with your likely urchin when he comes? Kenneth keeps his eyes shut, trying to will the voice away. The charm continues on, saying, That's amusing. Do you think I cannot see you with your eyes closed? Shut up. Leave me alone. I wish I had never had you made. Oh, now you have wounded my feelings. Such words to bandy about after all we have endured together. Do you truly believe that boy can heal you? No, you could not be so foolish. Of course you are desperate enough that you will insist he try. Do you know what amazes me? That you fear death so much that it makes you brave enough to face the surgeon's knife. Think of that swollen flesh, so tender you scarce can bear the brush of a sheet upon it. And it continues on a little bit, trying to gross Kenneth out. And Kenneth asks, why do you torment me? And the charm replies, because I can. I am probably the only one in the whole world who can torment the great Captain Kennet, the liberator, the would-be king of the pirate isles. Brave serpent bait of the inside passage. Tell me, what do you want of the boy priest? Do you desire him? He stirs in your fever dreams memories of what you were. Would you do as you were done by? No, I was never. What, never? The wizardwood charm snickered cruelly. Do you truly believe you can lie to me, bonded as we are? I know everything about you. Everything. I made you to help me, not to torment me. Why have you turned on me? Because I hate what you are, the charm replied savagely. I hate that I am becoming a part of you, aiding you in what you do. Kenneth drew a ragged breath. What do you want from me, he demanded. It was a cry of surrender, a plea for mercy or pity. Now there is a question you never thought of before this. What do I want from you? The charm drew the question out, savoring it. Maybe I want you to suffer. Maybe I enjoy tormenting you. Maybe. 
Footsteps sounded outside the door, Etta's boots and the light scuff of bare feet. Be kind to Etta, the charm demanded hastily, and perhaps I will. The door opened and the face fell silent. Quick question. Do you think that the face can hear Kenneth's thoughts? Yeah. So wizard would, the wizard would charm itself said we are bonded as we are. So I feel that, yes, they have that bond. Kenneth has never reached out towards the charm itself. Yeah. Interesting. Just a thought. But yeah, a lot happened in that section. A lot of information is given to us. One major thing is Kenneth's past and that something unspeakable has happened to him. Right. And Kenneth himself is denying it happened. I'm not sure whether Kenneth doesn't remember because he put it inside of Paragon, the feelings he had about what was done to him as a boy, or if he just, it's just something that he doesn't ever admit even to himself happened. I think it's the latter. I think he knows it happens. And even if he puts some of those memories or thoughts in there, I think it's similar to Fitz putting his memories or feelings into Girl on the Dragon where he's aware of what happened. It's just the bright pain of it is dulled, basically. So obviously it still haunts him in his mind. So if he placed full memories, kind of placed full memories in Paragon, then I don't think he'd be having the dreams about it. Fair. That's true. And I think also... Just the the charm's way of talking about what Kenneth is expecting out of Wintro is also really enlightening. Yeah. And the reason why maybe Kenneth is more willing to let Wintro be around him or have lived. I think knowing that it reminds him of who he was at that age and that they must look somewhat similar and that there is some sort of baseline attraction there, which he is straying from. He says he doesn't want to become the person that Igret was in that way. And I believe him in this moment that that is his ultimate goal, that he like truly doesn't want to feel whatever it is that he feels towards Wintro. Um, yeah, but I don't know. very repressed in that and yeah. who he is. You know, it, it's it comes down to interpretation of the characters and who you see in these characters. But to me, I I do see uh, a repressed gay man in Kenneth, or maybe bisexual. But the way that he describes going to you know whorehouses and talks about women and things like that, I don't know. It's just. Something in there. And then his experience with his past and Igret makes him feel as though that is an absolutely disgusting thing or he needs to stay away from that. So I, I just feel that his trauma in the past really does not help the situation with Wintro now. Yeah. And I think there's the added layer of like also Wintro's age being in there. And I right. think like... Obviously, that is a separate situation 
from Kenneth potentially liking men. I don't think. Yeah. Like, I think the fact that he is attracted to Wintrow and Wintrow is young is what is ultimately disgusting because that makes him no better. Yeah. And like, I don't think there's been a ton of opportunity for him to see people who were, I guess, attractive in the way that Wintrow would be because Wintrow hasn't been a sailor his whole life. So he probably is a lot prettier or handsomer than most men that go into the life of sailing and like most adult men he's encountering. Like he's a pirate. He goes to the pirate aisles. He's (laughs) not seeing the like champion of men. You know, it's really easy. We've also talked about this with, uh, with Etta in the previous books too, how she is described as fairly androgynous, not the prettiest one there described like a plank i think multiple times which <laughs> yeah is horrible but, <laughs> but yeah it's just i don't know it's just a peek into who kenneth is and it's never spelled out in these books so again like i said it's really down to who you see in the characters and what you can relate to because it's reader interpretation yeah to this point and i like i just think that personally because i know the like young thing is an issue. Like, obviously it's all bad, like things that happen in the future with Kenneth. But I think, I don't think this is about him secretly liking young people. No, I don't think so either. At all. I think Wintrow is just a like cute kid and there is some level of attraction and that grosses him out. First of all, because it's a man, but second of all, because it's a child and that's what Igret did. And I like, I think that's where a lot of the shame is coming from. I don't think, Kenneth would do anything to a child no, because yeah, of his yeah. desire or whatever. I think that his more like more discuss is also about it being a man. It's not yeah. like, I don't know how it's to just like multiple explain. layers in there. Yeah. I just, I don't want to like not talk about both, but I do think that they're separate to me and why he is disgusted by both. Two, yeah. two different levels of disgust layered on top of one another makes him just refuse to look at that situation Yeah, and, and refuse those memories to yeah. the charm. And also, I think because they're both tied to his childhood trauma, there is that situation of like, yeah. oh, stay away from that. <laughs> you know, I don't know. It's just a challenging situation to talk about. But I do agree. I think he's definitely I don't think he's a straight character, um, but. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. It's all a spectrum, really. And so the charm's last words are be kind to Etta. But Kenneth, of course, does not take kindly to being bossed around by a piece of wood. So immediately says, good, leave us, after Etta announces that she brought Wintrow. If the damn charm thought it could force him into anything, it was wrong. Etta looks stricken. Kenneth, do you think that's wise? No, I think it is stupid, and that's why I told you to do it, because I delight in stupidity. His voice was low as he flung the words at her. He watched the face at his wrist for some sort of reaction. It was motionless, but its tiny eyes glittered. Probably it plotted revenge. He didn't care. While he could breathe, he would not cower before a bit of wood. Get out. Leave the boy to me. Her back was very straight as she marched out. She shut the door firmly behind her, not quite slamming it. The moment she was outside, Kenneth drags himself to a sitting position and then addresses Wintrow. I think we should address also the fact that the last thing the charm says is be nice to Etta. Yeah. Because I know we've talked in the past about 
what the motivation, the charm has and does the charm hate Kenneth? Does it love Kenneth? Is it, does it love Etta? And there was somebody who said that they don't think the charm has feelings for Etta, um, that it's more just using Etta for Kenneth's gain in some weird way. I don't know. I think this is a pretty good indicator that the charm, unless it's really, really good at tricking even Kenneth in its real emotions, the fact that it realized it was running out of time and immediately went to be nicer to Etta, I feel like proves that there's some sort of feeling there. Right. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe it, maybe it really does love Kenneth or at least have that connection with him and sees that Etta is good for him in some ways. I don't know. And doesn't want Etta to be pushed away. It is really interesting because it talks about how he's, he is mean to Kenneth. The charm is mean to Kenneth because he's the only one that's capable of doing so. Like nobody else is going to act like that to Kenneth. And I don't know, like that could come from a place of like friendship of like, you need somebody to put you in your place. That's human. Yeah. You need somebody to be able to stand up to you. Or if that's coming from a place of, I don't know, it's fun to torment you because nobody else can. And I know I can. Yeah. Cause the charm also says, because I hate what you are and I hate that I am becoming a part of you, aiding you in what you do. So I think there's a little bit of maybe both in there. Yeah. It's hard. It's hard to tell. And so Kenneth bosses Wintrow around a little bit saying, come here, exposing his leg. There it is. Like, what do you think about it? What are you going to do for me? And Wintrow is blanching. Kenneth's, of course, saying, you know, fix me. <laughs> and Wintrow's like, I don't know what I can do. It's very bad. And Kenneth reminds him that, well, your life and your father's life is on the line. So you better try. Winter replies, yeah, I know that my life is forfeit if you die, with or without my efforts. She would never suffer me to survive you. You fear the woman, do you? Kenneth permitted his grin to widen. You should. So, what do you propose? He tried to keep up his bravado with casual words. The boy looked back at his leg. He furrowed his brow and pondered. The intensity of his concentration only made his youth more apparent. Kenneth glanced down once at his decaying stump. After that, he preferred to watch Wintrow's face. The pirate winced involuntarily as the boy extended his hands towards his leg. I won't touch it, Wintrow promised. His voice was almost a whisper. But I need to discover where the soundness stops and the foulness begins. He cupped his hands together as if to capture something under them. He began at the injury and slowly moved his hands up towards Kenneth's thigh. Wintrow's eyes were closed to slits, and his head was cocked as if he listened intently to something. Kenneth watched his moving hands. What did he sense? Warmth, or something subtler, like the slow working of a poison? The boy's hands were weathered from hard wor work, but retained the languid grace of an artisan's. You have only nine fingers, Kenneth observed. What happened to the other one? An accident, Wintrow told him distractedly, then bade him hush. Kenneth scowled, but did it as he was bid. He became aware of the boy's cupped hands moving above his flesh. Their ghostly pressure reawakened him to the pounding rhythm of the pain. Kenneth clenched his teeth, swallowed against it, and managed to push it from his mind once more. I'll stop right there quickly, just to discuss what Quintro is doing. I think he's using the skill in a way that he has seen other priests do so. He says later that he's seen this surgery happen twice before. 
So I think like it's a method that he's learned in the monastery, but is not very practiced at. I don't know. I don't think this is like just for this kind of surgery. I think right, yeah, just any sort of poisoning or any whatever. healing in general, just going to the base level of the body to figure out what feels wrong. Um, so I think I would a little bit disagree and say that I think he's more practiced in this aspect than the actual surgery itself, which he has, he says later only seen done twice. Yeah, maybe. But I think this is something that probably he's been actually trained in. And so he can at least be confident in this aspect. I don't know, but he is trying his best. It's very clear that Wintro is putting a lot of effort, which as people who know Wintro before this is not super surprising. He is capable of trying to help and will do that to the best of his ability. Um, but I think it's interesting to read from Kenneth's point of view because Kenneth doesn't know Wintro and he takes the earnestness of him as something that marks him as young. But I feel like this is just who Wintro is as a person, young or not. True. I also want to say I'm disappointed because you skipped over Wintro's iconic line of when when uh, Kenneth's asking what they're going to do, saying, let's think of it this way. If we do not attempt to take off your leg, you will die. What do we have to lose by trying? I think that is a very good reasoning. And Kenneth does not like it. <laughs> but here we have Kenneth kind of trying to focus. And whatever Winter is doing is causing pain. It is causing the... I think it's causing awareness to Kenneth. I can like, if you, if you don't, if you don't touch anybody, but like put your hand right above somebody's skin, you can kind of feel that presence. I feel like that's what's bringing an awareness to Kenneth of his injury. He's trying so hard to forget it and push that pain from his mind to not feel it, to keep up his strong front of I am in control. And I think with Wintro hovering over him, almost touching him, He's like, that's a bad injury, and it's slowly creeping into his mind. Hmm. I was one. I thought maybe that was coming off of something that was like happening on a magic level. Oh, I didn't think of that at all, but I guess maybe because I think technically what Winter is doing is like taking Kenneth's body's awareness of the injury into himself. So maybe. In some way, I think he's like bringing the awareness to the surface, but I don't know. He doesn't touch him at all, which is usually necessary for that kind of thing, for some people at least. Either way, we don't know enough about how the priests do this healing stuff to, I guess, know. Midway up Kenneth's thigh, Wintrow's hands halted and hovered. The lines in his brow grew deeper. The boy's breathing deepened, steadied, and his eyes closed completely. He appeared to sleep standing. Kenneth studied his face. Long, dark lashes curled against his cheeks. His cheeks and jaw had lost most of the child's roundness, but showed not even the downy beginning of a beard. Beside his nose was the small green sigil that denoted he had once belonged to the satrap. Next to that was a larger tattoo, a crude rendering that Kenneth recognized as Vivacia's figurehead. Kenneth's first reaction was annoyance that someone had so compromised the boy's beauty, then he perceived that the very harshness of the tattoo contrasted with his innocence. 
Etta had been like that when he first discovered her. A coltish girl in a whorehouse parlor. Can it, sir? He opened his eyes. When did he close them? And Wintrow points to surprisingly high on Kenneth's thigh of like, here, I think we can cut into sound flesh here. And Kenneth is wondering like, why, why don't we just cut the foulness off? Why do we have to cut into the good stuff? And Wintrow explains it'll heal better and, and all sorts of things like that. And he starts describing the process as well. And Kenneth's fighting to keep a composed expression. The boy's face was intense, and he reminded Kenneth of Sorkor attempting to plot strategy. So I think Kenneth is sitting here like, oh man, he reminds me of my dumb first mate attempting to do something smart. Yeah, and I mean, to be fair, it's then revealed to him that Wintrow has never done this before, and he's only seen it done twice. Right. So he's not sure what to do. (laughs) And Wintrow is doing what he always does and talking things out loud, right? He's stating his thoughts and ordering everything. And Kenneth is sitting here wondering, like, why is he describing this in such detail? Is he trying to unnerve me? Or did he just forget I was here? Yeah, well, because at one point, Wintrow specifically says, now to uh, for your stitches, most people would use fish guts, but I've heard it said that the hair on somebody's head is much better for closing their own injury. And you have really nice hair for that. So it should work perfectly. And it's like, ew, why are you? (laughs) This is not like a fun topic. Why are you talking about it? Like it's no big deal. And Kenneth responds and for the pain, trying to keep again, his front, his strong front up. And Wintrow says, your own courage, sir, will have to serve you best. The boy's dark eyes met his squarely. I shall not be quick, but I shall be careful. Brandy or rum before we begin. Were it not so rare and expensive, I would say we should obtain the essence of the rind of a quasi-fruit. It numbs a wound wonderfully. Of course, it only works on fresh blood. It would only be effective after we had done the cutting. Perhaps you should think well of what crewmen you shall want to hold you down. They should be large and strong men, with the judgment to ignore you if you demand to be released or threaten them. Unwillingness washed over Kenneth like a wave. He refused to consider the humiliation and indignity he must face. He thrust away the idea that this was inevitable. There had to be some other way, some alternative to vast pain and helplessness. How could he choose them, knowing that even if he endured it all, he still might die? How foolish he would look then. And this whole time, Wintrow has been continuing, just going through the whole process of like, oh, and then we have to uh, close off with a stitch or two. And says, I've never done this, but I've seen it done twice. He licks his lips suddenly, and his eyes go wide. Kenneth demands, what is it? I'll have your life in my hands, he wondered aloud. And I have yours in mind, the pirate pointed out, and your father's. That's not what I meant, Winter replied. His voice sounded like a dreamer's. You are doubtless accustomed to such power. I have never even wished for it. So we end it right there. So we get, again, a contrast of who Kenneth and Wintrow are as people. Kenneth only thinks of that power over somebody else's, and Wintrow's like, this is way too much responsibility. (laughs) Yeah, and I think Kenneth's knee-jerk reaction to respond to Wintrow's I have your life in my hands is to take it as a threat and to threaten in turn to say, yeah, well, yours is in mine. And so is your father's. 
and Wintra was saying, no, I am in awe of the fact that I will have a life in my hands and my actions directly are responsible right. for what happens to yours. So yeah, definitely a good bow to tie up how Wintro feels. Yeah, it's a it's a very interesting perspective to see Kenneth in this. And with the revelations of his past before, you can see the horror of the pain and helplessness that he's feeling for this. The anticipation of that. That's what he went through as a kid repeatedly of just being helpless in a situation. He was the only person on a ship of pirates with Paragon there as the only friend to him. Mm -hmm. And now he has to go through that again and he might die at the end without Paragon there. It's a big thing to ask of him. Yeah. So we wrap up this chapter. A lot of jumping around from perspectives on Vivacia here. We kind of catch up with Wintro and Vivacia and Kennet and see where they're at. And the charm too. Yeah. It's very interesting to see a little bit more about the charm here. If you have thoughts on that or any part of this book or any of our discussions, please let us know. We love to have discourse with you guys and, and talk back and forth about your ideas. You can email us directly at isfitshappy at gmail.com. You can visit us on isfitshappy.com and see all of our links to everywhere, including our social medias, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. You can find us at isfitshappy at one of those and leave us a direct message or a comment on one of our posts. And of course, you can find us on YouTube as well. Thank you so much for tuning in. Hope you enjoyed this week's episode. Can't wait to hear what you say. Yeah, see you next week.